0: Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening.
1: So, Matthew three thirteen. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you, uh, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Um, And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. I'm just going to pray for Steve as he comes up. Um, dear God, thank you um, for everybody who is here today, and I thank you um, that you see us for who we are um, and that you love us. Um, we just pray um, for Steve as he preaches today that it would be coming from you and, um, yeah, that he would be obedient to you and what you're trying to tell us. Give us um, ears to listen and hearts to understand. Amen.
0: Great to be with you. Uh, I do commend you to come to the meeting after the service uh, about the vision of finance, if this is your church. Today we start a new series looking at different encounters Jesus has with different people in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're thinking about what it means for us to encounter Jesus today as they did then. But we're also thinking every single week, does Jesus answer the biggest questions of our world? Does Jesus give answers to the big questions of our world? And the question we're looking at today, Jesus is going to encounter the great enemy, Satan, or the devil, or the deceiver, or the accuser, or the tempter, different names. And the question we're looking to answer is, who am I? Is there a bigger question in our society today than the question of personal identity? It is the most dominant question in our culture, the question of the self. What defines me? What makes me valuable? Who am I? Our culture tells us to look inside ourselves discover and decide what we are based on what we feel, and express those feelings out to the world as our identity. Philosophers call this way of identity formation, expressive individualism, looking inside at our emotions and desires to discover, decide, and define for ourselves what our identity is, and then demand that the world around us accept and champion our self-chosen identity. Well, Jesus shows us a different way of identity formation, as the devil tempts Jesus both to doubt and to misuse his identity. Before we get into that, there's an obvious question. When we talk about the devil or Satan, what are we talking about? Uh, The idea of a red or black devil with horns and a pitchfork surrounded by fire, casting superstitious and magical spells to control us? Modern secular society says, come on, we're beyond all that, aren't we? And actually, yes, we are. The picture on your screen is nothing like how the devil is presented in Scripture. He is subtle and crafty, often hidden, and his weapons are not fire and horns and forks, but lies. He deals in lies, not fire. He doesn't act in superstitious or magical waves, and he doesn't leave fang marks on the flesh. He attacks our hearts with lies, contradicts God's work, makes us doubt his character, and so condemnation into our hearts. One commentator says, Matthew 4 tells us that the devil operates mainly using words, thus by suggestion and argument, by introducing ideas and thoughts, possibilities into our minds. The focus of all three temptations is word and thought, which are quiet words. So let's dive in and see what we can learn about facing temptation ourselves as we seek to answer the question, who am I? Verse 1, then the devil was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, sorry, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Notice the first word, then. That's why I got Molly to read the first, the last chapters, the last verses of chapter 3. What happened before Jesus was tempted? Well, in Matthew 3, 13 to 17, we have the baptism of Jesus. And in the baptism of Jesus, we see the eternal community of love. The Father delights in the Son's obedience, and the Spirit comes to alight and anoint the Son with power for ministry. So the baptism of Jesus gives us a glimpse, heaven was opened, of what the eternal community of love is like. Delight, joy, power, and service between the father the son and the spirit and what exactly does the father say to the son at his baptism verse 17 this is my son whom i love with him i am well pleased when jesus hears these words from the father he receives three things belonging this is my son love whom i love pleasure with him i am well pleased In other words, Jesus' identity, who he is, is as clear and affirming as it could be. He is the son of God who belongs intimately and eternally in a relationship of love and pleasure with the Father and and the Spirit who affirm him and anoint him and bless him and delight in him. His value as a person is beyond doubt. He is God's beloved and delighted son. Then Jesus was led. Immediately after the affirmation of the identity of Jesus, he receives an assault on his identity. We'll hear the devil say on two occasions, verse 3 and verse 6, if you are the Son of God, prove it. The devil wants Jesus to prove and misuse the identity that God has given him. And that is the greatest weapon the devil has in your life and the greatest lie. He attacks the identity that you have been given by God. And he makes us think every day we need to prove ourselves. We need to justify ourselves. We need to establish our worth and value, not on what God the Father thinks about me, but what I can do. And each day we feel the assault of the devil on our identity, And just as Jesus felt it, so we have all felt it. We all know what it's like to hate ourselves and wish we were someone else. To feel that incessant need somehow to prove ourselves to everyone. And to wake up somewhere out of nowhere with a nagging feeling that as we start our day, we are inadequate. It's the greatest weapon the devil has He wants to assault you about your identity given by God. And something else, notice the order. First love, then evil. First power, then temptation. First God's affirmation, then the wilderness. First anointing by the Spirit, and then terrible hunger and thirst. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil. It's as if Matthew is saying, Read my lips no one is exempt from trials and tribulations and in fact and this is often what happens to the people God loves the most it's often part of God's mysterious and good plan for turning us into something greater than what we can discover inside he can make us something magnificent The spirit led Jesus into the temptation and trials In other words, when people say, if God loved me, all these bad things wouldn't happen, they haven't read the Gospels about God's beloved son. It might actually be the other way around. Because God loves me, he might be bringing me into trials to make me into something more wonderful than I ever could have imagined or dreamt or discovered inside by facing the trial and trusting him. And what a wonderful assurance there is for us. Though the devil may have his plans, God's plans for my life are greater and will prevail. Though the devil may tempt, God is testing and refining to make me someone greater than I am now. So let's look at the first temptation. The first one, verses 2 to 4, the temptation to satisfy yourself. Or we might say the temptation to instant gratification. And who doesn't know this temptation? Jesus is hungry because he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And in his moment of weakness, the tempter comes to him, which is always his way. He always comes when you're weak and prone to give in. Verse 3, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are so loved and affirmed and cherished and delighted in by God the Father, prove it show your power and your greatness, demonstrate who you are. And of course, the little whisper in the ear, you deserve it. You're hungry. You're weak. God wouldn't want you to be unhappy. God wouldn't want to put you through any hardship or deny you something as basic as food. Come come on, you deserve it. And so this is not just the devil making Jesus doubt his identity but misuse it. To use his power as God's son in self-serving ways. And isn't that how it always feels to us when we know the temptation to satisfy ourselves with sex or money or alcohol or drugs or anger or food or selfishness or the box set binge or stubbornness or moodiness or the cold shoulder? We deserve it. It's unfair. I need it. I can't live without it. I'm justified. I have good reason. It's just bread. Don't you know that pattern of thought? I deserve. I need. It's unfair. I'm justified. And so in our power, we strike out and satisfy ourselves, living independent of God rather than trusting his provision for us. It's what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, 6 When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. It looks so nice. It's desirable. I deserve. I need. I should have it. I cannot live without it. And so we strike out in independence and self-sufficiency, not trusting God to satisfy ourselves. And that's what's at stake in the first temptation, a lack of trust in God's provision for our lives. When we strike out in our power to satisfy ourselves, we don't want to be dependent on God and his purposes and timings for our lives. But Jesus knows different. Quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, he says, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We live in dependence on God, not just for physical food, but for the real food that matters, that will sustain us through the journey of life. The bread of God, the word of God. Temptation one, to satisfy yourself, to misuse your identity and your power to satisfy your needs rather than living in dependence on God, his timings, his ways, as your loving father. Temptation two, verses five to seven, the temptation to test God. This time, the devil takes him to Jerusalem, the holy city, with all the history and the meaning and to the temple, to the highest point, with all that sense of holiness and otherness and encountering God, the wonder of encountering God in the temple, which is what it was all about, his presence. Do you notice the switch from the worldly to the spiritual? From the bakery to the holy of holies? From the carnal to the religious? From vulnerability in the wilderness to security in God's temple? From the ground to a great height? From the weak spot to the strong spot? In other words if the devil cannot tempt you by attacking your weakness he'll tempt you by attacking your strength. If the evil one cannot make us carnal perhaps he'll make us fanatically religious. If he cannot make us super selfish by seeking wonder bread perhaps he'll make us super spiritual by suggesting immature leaps of faith. The first technique is to aim at our weak spots. Well obviously It is the easiest to make a person fall. But the second technique is not to aim at our next weakest spot most cleverly, it's to aim at our strength. This is a kind of spiritual jujitsu. Perhaps we sin as often through presuming on our strengths as we do succumbing in our weakness. As is often said, your greatest strength is your weakness, uh, your greatest weakness is your greatest strength. And again, the evil one goes on, Uh, it goes to his identity, verse 6. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This time Jesus is tempted to prove his identity, not by satisfying himself, but by testing God. If God really is your father, if he really does delight you, if these promises in scripture really are true... Jump off the temple. Psalm 91 has a promise that the angels will come to your rescue. Claim that promise by faith, the devil says to him. But the road to being the Messiah will be far less spectacular than what the world or our desires might want. Being the Messiah will mean miracles. But before any miracles are done, this is the start of Jesus' ministry. Jesus learns here for the rest of his life To reject the selfish use of the miraculous. Notice a few other things. Firstly, how clever the evil one is. He's just heard Jesus say in verse 4, it is written, and then quotes some scripture, Deuteronomy 8. And so immediately he tries to play Jesus at his own game, verse 6. Did you see that? It is written, he quotes back at Jesus. And then he quotes Psalm 91. In John's gospel, speaking to the religious leaders about the evil one, Jesus says, He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He is a liar and the father of lies. And the father of lies is so clever in dealing lies that he will quote, misquote, manipulate scripture, God's word, to his own end to get into your heart. That's what he did to Adam and Eve. They were told very clearly not to eat from the fruit, from the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. God had clearly said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. What does the murdering father of lies do as he speaks his native language lies? Did God really say? What's the devil's first tactic with humanity? To make us doubt God's word. Did God really say? Are you sure that's what God says? And he actually misquotes scripture. Did you see it? Any tree. No, God had not said they could not eat from any tree. It was one tree. And as he misquotes scripture by saying, well, any tree, he makes out God to be a spoil sport. And not only is he making them doubt God's good word, he's making them doubt God's good character. God is trying to restrict you. God wants to ruin your fun. God doesn't want your best. God's a spoil sport. God isn't good and generous and loving and kind. So the devil's tactics, doubt God's good word and doubt God's good character. And that's what Jesus gets here. Well, if God really is good, and if his word is really good, well, Psalm 91 says, well, prove it. If you're the beloved, delighted, anointed son, prove it. The devil is setting a trap. Jesus is weak and hungry, and he's all alone. Let's bring him to the great city of Jerusalem and the highest point of the glorious temple of God, and let's quote scripture at him, and let's get him to prove his identity as God's son. And in doing so, let's get them to prove that God's word is it really good and is God's character really Go on, the devil saying to Jesus. Like a hunter trying to trap their animal and take the bait. So the devil is trying to trap Jesus. But Jesus is alert and discerning as ever, and escapes the trap by correctly quoting Scripture. Deuteronomy 6:16, 6, it is also written: do not put the Lord your God. To the test. Instead of using my power to test God, I'm going to trust God, His good Word, and His good character. For us, just as we've all felt the power of the first temptation to use our power to satisfy ourselves and not live in dependence on God. Oh, how we've all felt the temptation of temptation too, to test God in a fanatical act of religiosity, a desperate and defiant prayer, which seems very spiritual, but actually at its heart doubts God's good plan and good word, and wants to avoid the ordinary cross-shaped path for a more spectacular, miraculous one that serves my needs immediately. Oh, we felt the trap, pulling us in, wanting to get us, trying to control us, suffocating us. As we learnt last week from 1 Peter, our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Therefore, we must be alert and of sober mind. We must resist him, standing firm in the faith. Sadly, for 40 years in the desert, 40 years, 40 nights, God's people fell to that trap time and time again. The people of Israel were known for grumbling and complaining and testing god despite his great rescue of them out of slavery despite the great promises to protect them provide despite the great promises of of provision and this wonderful plentiful land flowing with milk and honey they tested god and with rose-tinted spectacles looked back on the life in egypt looked back on life in slavery as better than life with god they doubted god's good word and god's good character (laughs) temptation one to satisfy yourself rather than living in dependence on God. Two, to test God, not trust him, doubting his good character and good word. Both of them have a challenge to identity, to prove it or to misuse it. Temptation 3, verse 8 to 10, the temptation for power, wealth, fame, and comfort. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down And worship me. Can you see? We're going higher and higher and higher from the desert to the highest points of the temple, and now to such a high mountain that you can survey all the glories and splendor of the world. But we all know that the higher you climb, the greater the potential for a fall. The high places in this world are slippery places. Advancement in the world makes you a fair mark for Satan to shoot his fiery darts at you. Therefore, they who would take heed of falling would take heed of climbing. To climb higher and higher to greater and greater success in this world can open yourself up to all kinds of temptations and falls. And I think, friends, this is the temptation and the trap that the devil has got most of the Western world in. If you just achieve your dreams, if you get all your heart's desire, if you get rich and powerful and live in comfort, if you're popular and everyone thinks you're great, then you'll have the validation of your identity that you're looking for. Then you'll be someone, then you'll be happy, then you'll rest in who you are. But it's a lie. And we know it's a lie for two reasons. One, mega-rich, mega-powerful superstars, time and time again, whether in business, politics, sport, music, or academia, repeatedly tell us it wasn't enough. And they weren't happy. And they didn't find the validation of their identity through the great achievements they made. And despite the power wealth, fame, and fortune, the rest in their hearts never came. And secondly... We live as some of the wealthiest, most prosperous people that have ever lived. We have better healthcare, better opportunities, better education, better life experiences than our ancestors and most of the people in the world today. And yet we still think, don't we? We don't quite have enough, is what we think. I just need a bit more. The Western world is plagued. We are plagued with discontent. Our accumulation of wealth and power and experiences and relationships and achievement and healthcare provisions and all the rest haven't delivered the satisfaction, peace, security, validation that we want. We're more fearful and anxious as a generation than previous generations and other cultures, which had a far lower life expectancy and life opportunities. It's what every Westerner discovers when they visit sub-Saharan Africa. They have so little And yet are so happy. We have so much, and yet are so unhappy. And remember, the devil is always subtle. Where's the subtlety here? Jesus is not asked to spend his whole life worshiping at the devil's feet. He's given a real bargain: one momentary bow, just a single act. What a promise. It's breathtaking. The whole world is in the bargain. Just one gesture to me, the devil. Give me your allegiance. Worship me once and I'll give you everything. All the power and all the wealth and all the glory and the comforts of this world. Then you'll be someone. Just give in for one moment and worship me. It's a trap. It's a trap our generation has fallen into. Adam and Eve fell into it. Israel fell into it. Jesus fell into it. If you've seen the musical, Hamilton fell into it. Jesus would say in Matthew's Gospel, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? And when we think of the balance, well, what can someone give in exchange? The whole world for their soul eternally? There's more than meets the eye in the momentary bow for the whole world is to lose your soul eternally and Jesus will not fall for the trap. And Jesus tells us the remedy. What's the way out of the trap? Well, to remember who really is worthy of worship and your allegiance, who will give you the validation that we all desperately want as a person. For Jesus is not power and wealth and fame and comfort. No, quoting Deuteronomy 6.13, he says, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Have you noticed that Jesus quotes three passages from Deuteronomy 6 through 8? What's going on in Deuteronomy 6 to 8? Moses is giving his final speech to the people of Israel before they enter the plentiful land of milk and honey and discover prosperity and plentiful gifts beyond their imagination. And repeatedly in these chapters, Moses tells them three things. As they receive this plentiful, rich, and satisfying land as a gift from God, three things. They must not forget God in their wealth, Deuteronomy 6. They must not fall into idolatry by marrying foreign nations and serving their gods, Deuteronomy 7. And they must not become proud and think, oh, look what we achieved but always remember it was a gift given by grace. In other words, when we consider the testing and temptation in the desert that lasted 40 years for Israel and 40 days for Jesus, the devil uses adversity to test us, to doubt God's good word, his good character, and his love for you. And he uses prosperity to test us, to forget God's good word and his good character. And his grace towards you that's given you everything you have that's good in life. But the devil met his match. Whether high or low, strong or weak, prosperity or adversity, Jesus would not yield. And so verse 11, then the devil left him. And the angels came and attended him. The angels of Psalm 91 did come and provide for his needs. And so for us, as we apply these truths to our lives and consider the assault the devil is making on our identity every single day as children of God, what are our greatest weapons of attack and defense? Well, there are three that the passage gives us. The first one is the word of God, the Bible. Each time the devil comes with lies, Jesus responds with the Bible. Jesus didn't need... Personal word from God in that moment. Jesus didn't need a direct line to his Father in heaven for that moment. Jesus needed to open his Bible and read it to the devil. And he had one Old Testament book that seems to be sufficient for him the book of Deuteronomy. So we do not need a personal word from God or a direct line to heaven to fight off the fiery darts and the condemning thoughts when we're attacked. We need the scriptures. And we have more than Jesus had, don't we? He just had the Old Testament. We have more weapons in our armory to defend than Jesus has because we have the Old and the New Testament. Three times Jesus overcomes the evil one by quoting the Bible. So may the number one weapon we use be the Bible. May we read it, memorize it, know it, use it. And when in the morning you wake up and you feel inadequate and you need to prove yourself and you have a nag, open it before you look at your phone. Find out what God says about you and pray that deep into your heart at the start of every day. The word has the power to fight off the evil one. Secondly, maybe less obvious, but I'll take you through it. Our baptism is our next great weapon against the evil one. Where do we hear God's voice declared over us that we are beloved children of God who the Father delights in. It's at our baptism. We repent and believe and we publicly declare to the church that we have put our trust in Jesus. And baptism says you are united with Christ in your baptism. And you go down with him and you come up with him. And therefore the church in that moment on behalf of God the Father, as you confess your faith, says... Ah, we can affirm publicly in history, a moment in history, that you are a beloved child of God. Eternally loved, secure, you belong, the Father delights in you and the Spirit of God then takes the word of the Father through the church and applies that to your life personally. So reminding ourselves of our baptism, a public moment in history where the church told us who we were on God's behalf is a great way to fight off the devil. The word, the baptism, but mostly our great weapon is our representative. What Jesus experienced in the wilderness would come to its fullness on the cross. He would thirst and be in agony from dehydration. But instead of satisfying his thirst, he'd drink the cup of eternal justice and satisfy the wrath of God against sinners. So we who were unlovely, could be made lovely in the sight of God and become his children who he delights in. On the cross, Jesus would repeatedly be called to test God and prove his identity as the Son of God, quoting Matthew 27, verse 39. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. Prove it if he wants him. For he has said, I am God's son. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Just as the devil urged Jesus to throw himself off the top of the temple, so he urged him to come down from the cross. But the way of the Messiah was not self-serving miracles. It was the way of the cross. It wasn't the way of glory. It was the way of suffering. And it was only by dying that Jesus could disarm the devil and release you and I from his eternal grip He would disarm him on the cross. He would take away any condemnation the devil could ever throw at us because he would take all that condemnation and the devil would have no weapons against us when we're in Christ, our representative. Romans 5 tells us about a second Adam. Jesus, representing us through the temptations of life to death on a cross. Where the first Adam te- was tested and found wanted in the Garden of Eden, the second Adam is tested and found faithful. Where one man's obedience under disobedience under temptation made us all sinners, another man's obedience under temptation made us all righteous. An effective righteousness that the devil cannot get at. J.C. Ra was a minister in the 19th century speaking on Christian assurance when we feel the condemning thoughts of the evil one. He doesn't use the phrase, the second Adam, but what does it mean to be in Christ? He says, now assurance goes far to set a child of God free. It enables them to feel that the great business of life is a settled business, the great debt a paid debt. The great disease, a healed disease, and the great work, a finished work. And all other business, disease, debts, and work are then by comparison small. In this way, assurance makes a child of God patient in tribulation, calm under bereavements, unmoved in sorrow, not afraid of evil tidings, in every condition content, for it gives them a fixedness, of heart. It sweetens their bitter cup. It lessens the burden of their cross. It smooths the rough places over which they travel, and it lightens the valley of the shadow of death. It makes the child of God always feel they have something solid beneath their feet and something firm under their hands. A sure friend, by the way, and a sure home at the end. What is our best defense? against the evil one. It's our representative, the second Adam, and our standing and our identity in him. He will give you a fixedness of heart when you face the devil's schemes. Don't look in to find yourself. Look at him. Look at him on the cross. Look at his forgiveness. Look at him disarming the evil one. And as you look at him, go... I am united to him by faith and his resurrection. I now am a child of God. I belong to my father eternally. I am loved by my father eternally. And I have a deep pleasure that my father gives me. He delights over me with singing. This is your identity. This is who you are. And this is what makes Christians, children of God, indestructible and valuable. Amen. Let's take a moment to pause. I'll invite you to stand in that pause as we just reflect a moment quietly. I'll pray and then we'll sing a couple of wonderful songs about our identity in Christ. Just take a moment and if you're comfortable you can close your eyes and just pause and allow the Spirit of God to reassure you afresh that you are children of God through faith in Christ. Amen.